This morning, our scripture reading is going to be from the book of Jude, which is a letter, uh, a letter from Jude. And as we read this scripture, and as we read scripture every week, and we read scripture in God's holy word, let us take it as it is, and let us open our ears to what God has to say for us, because these words are God's words for us. So let us listen to the word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immortality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who do not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment, for judgment in the great day. In a similar way, similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the, same, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But when the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only on themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown among by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires and they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. There are people who will divide you, who will follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Let us take this word in and take it in our hearts. And as we are prepared to hear the teaching of the gospel and the teaching of God's word, let us bow our hearts in prayer. God, we hope that we can have the same heart and same eyes as Jude. 
that we might find the importance of contending for our faith and the importance of fighting for you on a daily basis. God, we hope that we can seek with for you with all our hearts and seek to run away from those things in our own lives that take us away from you, the things that are ungodly in our own lives. Let us seek to praise you and worship you with all of who we are and with our whole lives. And as Pastor Mike comes up, we, we pray for him. As he comes to preach your word, whatever his words be, let them be, let them be yours. Let his teachings be your teachings. Let his heart, his mind, and his words be yours. We thank you for the leader and the pastor that you have instilled in this church, and we thank you for constantly working and moving in this body that we call Marian Methodist. Today, today we ask that Jesus, you just come and you move in this place. Move us to action. Move us to fight for your name and that it may be known to all creatures on this earth. And help us to do that for you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I have a few things to say before we go right to the teaching of the word. I'm going to ask the guys in the back. I have a picture I want to show you of our safety team workshop yesterday. Um, Yesterday, uh, most of you wouldn't know this, but uh, 80 people representing 25 churches showed up uh, to really hear from the captains of our safety team what what it's like to have a safety team in a church and what that uh, means. So obviously we hit a a note. We didn't know if we were going to have six or or 100, and uh, as we used an Eventbrite uh, registration, 80 people came yesterday for a, for a workshop here, and I'm really proud of our safety team. Uh, they did a fantastic job, and we found out how many people actually fit in room 100, so that was cool. Um, secondly, <clears throat> I want to remind you, you know, we're part of the, the middle of the Protestant tradition, and this Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m., we will be having an Ash Wednesday service. Uh, That has become a very important time in the life of our church as it launches us into the holy season of Lent. Ash Wednesday, different than the service you're experiencing now or earlier this morning, is really a time of of prayer and reflection and meditation. And we do, um, if you desire, impose the symbols of the ashes of repentance and the oil of healing on you and the sign of the forehead on your cross. So we invite you back uh, to those beautiful moments that will be held here uh, Wednesday night. Um. So those of you that aren't, uh, that are visiting with us, um, take, uh, I, I apologize, but I need to take a few minutes and do a little Methodist business right now. <clears throat> We're glad you're here, and uh, uh, hang with us. I'll be right to the teaching of the gospel in a moment. <clears throat> As many of you are aware, um, last through Thursday through this Wednesday uh, of this last week, I was at the General Conference of the United Methodist Church in St. Louis. It, 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 it Um, proved to be the most emotional, spiritually, and psychological experiences of my life. Uh, For all present and those watching the live stream or simply watching the news as things unfolded, it was a grueling, painful week that demonstrated more than ever the deep divides that exist within the United Methodist Church. And my sense was that everyone who attended went away with a sense of pain and loss. It is important for us to process this as a congregation, and I believe as your leader 
that the best venue for that is not Christian corporate worship. So please know that that all of us are breathing a little bit, um, discerning a little bit. And with the help of others, I will be preparing or planning one or more gatherings at which we can process and share and pray and maybe cry a little bit to be in unity around the common calling, which is ours in Jesus Christ. Over the past three years, we have sought to be faithful in communicating the matters of the general church as it sought a way forward on matters regarding human sexuality and holy sexuality and even had a council of our own that worked that out whose results uh, have been shared, but we'll share them again. And this morning, I'm going to ask your grace, and I think grace that are appropriate for the pastor that's been in the church uh, for a decade and a half, uh, that I pledge to you um, this will not be set aside. And I want us to breathe a little bit, um, and we'll bring these things to the matter within the month of March. Uh, So hang with us. But briefly, let me summarize then the actions of General Conference, which is the only body that can speak for the entire Methodist Church. 864 delegates representing the global church were gathered, and these are the two main actions that they took. The Book of Discipline, which is the guiding principle of our church um, below, of course, the Holy Scriptures, Uh, retains its current language regarding homosexuality. Increased accountability for processes to enforce penalties for violations of the Book of Discipline related to marriage and the ordination of homosexual persons will stay in place. Some parts of these will be ruled unconstitutional by the Judicial Council of the United Methodist Church. If you're not familiar with Methodism, Methodism was began in America kind of parallel in time frame to the United States. So we have three branches of the way we do our work, the legislative, which is general conference, the judicial, which is our judicial council, and the executive, which is our bishops. Much of what we did last week was not able to be amended, so it might be a great expense uh, for not many gains. Our bishop, Lori Haller, who spoke in this pulpit just a few months ago as we consecrated these new buildings, wrote this. While many people are grateful for the decisions of General Conference, others are devastated. And I know that to be true. When you, when you rule anything to 54% to 46 that is not a claim and that is certainly not consensus. Bishop continues, I pray that you will treat one another with compassion and kindness during this time. And I agree. And I think what we need to look forward to is now, what are we to do? Marian Methodist needs to be portrayed by you as a church that is welcoming and loving because it is. This is not a sales pitch. This is a simple admonition. We have friends and members and attendees who are single, married, gay, divorced, lesbian, widowed, transgendered, and to name some of the ways we identify ourselves and there are others. Do we affirm every behavior under the sun? We do not. And, most importantly, we affirm every person under the sun as one of infinite value of worth to God and to us. Are we struggling with our day? Yes, and absolutely yes. Do we hate anyone? No, and absolutely not. If anyone says we do, ask them to provide the evidence, because I have heard some things about my church and about how we are unaccepting to people, and I believe that those things are managed and sent from the very pit of hell, and I do not want to hear about them because I need evidence to the contrary because I have multiple pieces of evidence that would say that we are a loving, caring places 
I have much to say in the contrary to that. So Marian Methodist needs to stick together. When these conversations arose, I made clear one thing that's important for us to understand is the United Methodist Church and Marian Methodist. We are part of what's called a big tent church. We are part of the Protestant experience, particularly in this part of the world, which is to say we don't have a narrow group of teachings. We're a big tent, so that means using the terms of today, we have people that are very progressive in their faith and feel very conservative and everything in between. And the dissonance and the difficulty in a big tent church is that you have opportunity to express yourselves. And so we're not always just coming to church and say, what's the pastor say? Let's go that way. We can't check our brains at the door, neither can we check our hearts. We reflect on Scripture, and we seek to move faithfully forward. So the problems of a big tent church are the same as the joys of a big church tent. It takes a little while for us to come together as a conclusion, but I ask, and I suspect that many of you were drawn to this place because we are exactly that and drawn to Methodism or Protestant in, Protestantism in general because we are like that, which makes it sometimes, you know, hard. So what are we going to do? Marian Methodist will stay focused on the mission that glorifies God and reaches new people for the gospel. That is to say, we are going to continue our work seeking to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world and that is where we're at. So, again, I ask your grace and I ask your trust that this conversation doesn't end with a little announcement on Sunday morning. There will be more opportunity. But I think it's important for us to let temperatures cool down on whatever place you're at, to let some thoughtfulness go so that when we come together, we can disagree in love and work together uh, for whatever unity we might have at Marian Methodist. So would you join with me as we pray? We'll go right to the sermon. God, we thank you for your church. From the very first page in the New Testament to the last page, to the pages of our lives, it has had its dissonance in it. It has its struggles in it. And the very uh, words we read today show that uh, Jude, your your half-brother, experienced these in the very first century. So, Lord, we ask that uh, you might group us together. You might help us to understand Uh, who we are as a people, and that you might project from this place that there is no category, including anyone that might find themselves uh, grouped together in the community known as LGBTQIA+, that is put outside the church. You never put anyone outside. You come to every single one of us. You acknowledge us as those who have shortcomings in life that are sinners in need of redeeming. And then if we're willing to receive the transformative experience of knowing you, Uh, you will bring us home and you will hold us there forever. So, Lord God, let us be a people that reflects that as different as we all are so that we might be useful for your kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thank you for allowing me that that sharing. I want to turn for a two-week sermon series on the book of Jude. And, you know, some of you can go home. I don't want you to boast, but you can share with your friends that are from different faith traditions Maybe say, hey, listen, we in this two-week series accomplished reading a whole book of the Bible. But don't tell them it's Jude because there's only 25 verses there, so they won't be that impressed. But the book of Jude is actually a sermon. So it's a, it's a book written as a sermon, and I'm going to preach alongside it as a sermon. It is written by Jude, 
the brother of James and the half-brother, physically, of Jesus. Jude was not likely a believer until after the resurrection of Jesus. He, he likely didn't buy what, that, what his brother was sell, selling until he saw Jesus resurrected. And as Jude writes, it's a very interesting piece of Scripture. I was talking to one of you earlier today. This sermon, this book of Jude, draws from a wide variety of Christian resources, some of which we have, some of which we don't have, that are texts that are outside the Scriptures. For instance, when he talks about Michael, the archangel, and Satan arguing over the resurrection of Moses or not, when he talks in there about Enoch and some of the things he did, those are things that are outside the the books or, or the writings that we commonly know as Scripture, but are included here because he wants to set a tone. And the tone is set in the very first sentence when he says, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And Jude Jude says this, the Christian is first called. I know we know this in our own life, we just don't think about it a lot, that we are called out of unbelief into belief. If you understand who you are as a person, belief is not indigenous to the human person. You know, it's indigenous to us. Some of the first words we say are mine. Me, 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 me. That, that's who we are. That's our nature is to concern ourselves with ourselves, not necessarily to, to believe in that which is beyond ourselves and throw our lives towards us. But when, when, when the scripture says we're called, what it means is God's prevenient grace, which is God coming to us all the time. Even before you've received your salvation, even before you've heard a word, God is always coming to us. He's always calling to us. And when we take notice of that, when when we listen to it, when we grab on to that call, then we receive that to which we're called to, which is the faith. The Christian is also loved. See, this is evidenced in God's creative spirit and is testified to how different humanity is to all the rest of the creation see it talks in the scriptures in the first page or so where god creates humanity male and female he creates them in the image of god and then he does this very different thing everything else from from light to dark to earth to 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 the little animals that run on the ground to the fish in the sea the birds of the air god speaks them into existence but when it comes to humanity He draws us close to us, to himself, and he breathes the breath of life into us, which is to say the Holy Spirit breathes right into our lungs. That separates us and raises us to an elevated position above all the rest of creations. We are loved. God chooses us to be his children. And as we're chosen and appointed to be God's children, we have the opportunity and responsibility as Christians to choose that back. There's the old sentence. Everyone is a child of God, but not anyone is a child of God. You choose. You choose your childhood in God's way. We can be the children of God, so we're loved. And then it says we are kept for Jesus Christ. As we are called, as we are loved, Jesus grabs onto us and holds us to keep us falling because there are things around us trying to pull us away from him. But his grip is so strong. His love, his arms of love and mercy and grace are so strong around us that if we want to be held, no thing can rip us out of those arms. And that's what the Christian is. And so Jude is writing this letter 
and he desired to write a letter of blessing. He wanted to really celebrate that fact, but he needs to urgently call Christians to contend for the faith. Now, he's grievously alarmed in his generation because false teaching has crept into the church. And in that false teaching, these are likely Gnostic teachers, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. You can look that up. Google will have it. I'd, wait, I'd hope you'd wait now, but trust me here. They probably appeared to be nice church members. They probably agreed with a lot w- which was going on and did some of the missions, feeding the poor, helping elderly, all those kind of things. But there are two basic tenets of the Christian faith that are very important that they dismiss out of hand. One is the incarnation of Christ, which is to say they do not believe that Jesus Christ was a real living person. That was just a myth. That was just a story. It's something that we can consume and understand, but it doesn't really have anything to do with whether you should believe or not. That's kind of, um, not kind of, it's exactly in dissonance with Christian teaching because we believe that the center of our faith is Christ crucified and Christ resurrected, which is why we have the empty cross in the front of our sanctuaries. The second thing that the Gnostic teachers that would have been part of the church in Jude's time were discounting was the call to Christian ethics. You see, we believe that our belief needs to be tied to our behavior, that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are to act a certain way, and that way is to reflect that which Jesus teaches us and which is about. Jude writes, even though he wanted to kind of give him a nice rah-rah, celebrate the salvation you, you have, he writes to combat these teachings and encourage true doctrine and right conduct. So it is a Christian necessity, according to Jude, the brother of Jesus, to contend for the faith even within the church. Even within the church. The command is, here's your Greek word for the day, uh, and I'm better at, uh, I'm better at uh, Hebrew than I am Greek. But the command is to this word called epagonesia. Greek speakers, did I get it right? <laughs> so they told us in seminary, just pronounce it with authority and people will agree with it. Which means, so, so this word is replaced in English with the word contend. But it means to exert intense or strenuous effort on behalf of something to fight or contend for something. The Christian faith is something that is given to us by God. And therefore, we must not feel entitled to it. That's, that's a word we use a lot today, entitled. See, the entitled will not contend for anything. If you think you deserve something, you don't fight for it. The entitled won't contend because they feel like they deserve all the blessings of faith. They believe they believe deserve all the all the benefits of faith. And that's what speaks to the North American church. These words that says we need to contend for the faith remind us that we need to repent of the arrogance of our faith. We need to repent of the arrogance of a belief system that includes entitlement that we deserve this or that. We couldn't earn and we did not earn our own salvation. It can only be given to us by Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need to contend for it. We, we, we are secure not in our great ideas or our wonderful opinions or our great thoughts, but only in the alignment of our lives to the work of Jesus Christ. If we miss this, we miss the responsibility we have to contend for the gospel. Jesus Christ is the hope for the world. Not just for me, not just for people in Marion, but for all the people in the world of every kind, of every shape, of every melanin, all that. Everything. Everyone. No one's outside who Jesus is for. Jesus comes to save us all. 
and. Our repentance means we're to contend for God. This is how we act it out. You know, repentance is an idea, but then it also has legs on it. How do we repent the best? By contending for God every day. And listen to this, because it's going to it's going to hurt a few of us. We're to contend for God all day, every day. And many of us have not spent a moment contending for him anywhere or with anyone. I don't want you to miss that. We are to contend for God every single day in all the ways we can. And many of us have not spent a moment contending for him anywhere or with anyone. While Jude expected to write a feel-good sermon, he could not because spiritual dissonance is real. And it's around us. And with strenuous effort, we are to contend on God's behalf against it. Contending for the faith often means replacing that which sounds good, but in fact is not correct with the truth that is righteous. Many popular narratives in our generation, and by the way, James was writing writing 1900 centuries ago, 19 centuries ago. Many narratives in every generation, and we need to study history, we could find that, have just enough truth to appeal, but if followed, can lead to your physical, spiritual, and emotional destruction. So at at this congregation, I can make this reference a little more plainly. Um, I'm not going to raise hands, but you know Seinfeld, right? You, you know that reference? Let me give you an example of the point I'm making with Seinfeld. Seinfeld had this one episode. Do you remember the low-fat yogurt episode? Okay. So everybody in New York City was being sold that they could eat low-fat yogurt. They could eat as much of it as they want, and it was great for you, and it was wonderful. But here's the thing. Seinfeld and Kramer and, and, and uh, uh, George and all of them, they started getting fat. Because they were eating all this low-fat yogurt, and they realized that low-fat yogurt didn't mean it had less sugar content in anything. They even involved the mayor at the time, Rudy Giuliani, who went on uh, on TV and said, we're going to get to the bottom of this low-fat yogurt because we think we're getting tricked. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It, it sounded really pretty good. But it was physically destroying people. There's more. There's not too many of you in this in, in this congregation, can remember when there were ads in newspapers and, and magazines that said cigarette, listen to this, women, that cigarette smoking was good for you. It kept your complexion well and it kept you thin. There was a time in, in our lives in, in North America where we thought the best thing to do for people with mental health or men, mental health issues or mental disabilities was to lock them in places. You know, we had mental health institutes all over the place that sometimes just warehoused people far away. And we thought that was the best thing. And we we talk all the time about how there's sometimes just enough truth in things that 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 if you follow it, it's going to lead to your physical, your spiritual, your moral, and your emotional destruction. I hear all the time about students, and part of the reason we have four twelves is to combat this sentence. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't stop kids from, insert, doing drugs, having sex, whatever. And I don't believe that's true. I think that's the emotional and spiritual destruction of some of our youth. And that's why we have 412 and some of those things. And in my generation, what I've heard a lot of, and this isn't new because here was Jude teaching against it, you'll hear people saying, hey, 
any belief system is fine. One's as good as the next, which is simply not true. Because Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Savior, tells us, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And there is one way to God, and it's through me. We have to be careful about what comes to us. When we talk about contending for the faith, it's like, and all illustrations fall short when you say it's like something. When we contend for the faith, it's like weeding the garden of the church. Weeding the garden of the church of false teaching. I know when you look at weeds, they look good. You know, when we first moved out here, it was summertime. Didn't the weeds out here all look good? I mean, they were green and they were waist high and they were flowering and they were spewing their seeds everywhere. But you know, we're going to kill them all. And if you have a garden, your weeds pop up fastest. They look cute, but they're also destroying everything in the garden and in the church the same way. When you have false teachings pop up, they will consume the thing if you don't weed them out. The kind of Christian that God expects us to be requires a lot of effort. And we need to get often often get involved in things that we prefer not to get involved in. We have to stand up in places we don't want to stand up. Years ago, I was part of a, a preaching pulpit exchange. What that means is, you know, the Methodists go over and talk to the Lutherans. Presbyterians go talk at the Methodists, and so on and so forth. I was in this little town, and I went to my first non-Methodist service in a long time, and the first hymn was the hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Okay? You know, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And they started playing it, but it was the tradition of the church to sit down for the first hymn. I about lost my little Methodist spleen right there. I'm like, how do you do that? How do you sing stand up, stand up for Jesus? And we were sitting there and trying your best not to smile. But, but we need to, 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 to go sometimes. We, you know, we're, we're, we're in what we, you know, what Jude is, is encouraging us is an effort-based Christianity. I know and you know we can't ever repay Jesus for what he's given to us. We can never repay God for what he's given to us and the, the opportunity to live forever, the opportunity to be in communion with people like you for, for, for all eternity and to serve him. But we need to act like we can. We need to act like we're trying to repay God for what, us, what he's given us even though the debt we owe him is unpayable. That's an effort-based Christianity. We really need to throw ourselves into us. And this I know is true, too, because this is one of the hardest things I think about being Christianity. In Christianity. And if you're young coming up, you think it was different. From my entire life, my entire life, which is long time, right? My entire life, those who would have called themselves Christian in every town I've lived in, in every city in America, would have said, you're in the minority. The Christians are in the minority, and we have to be willing to be the minority. And we have to have a minority mentality, and the minority mentality just needs to work harder. You know, the gate to hell is wide. The gate to eternal life is narrow. And the narrow path is the one that we're called to take because that, mer- that, that narrow path has to do with, with knowing Christ and working for Christ and staying consistent in our behavior, and that's hard. So um, I know we need to get to communion, so let me give you four things, and I'll get you to your knees. What specifically does it mean to contend for the faith of basic Christian doctrine and truth? First. Each person needs to come know God, come to know God, not simply other people's thoughts about God. I think your grandmother's faith is great if she was a Christian. I think that's fantastic. 
but you have to pick up your own faith. Theology or theological ideas are wonderful. It's great to banter those things around about what is life and faith and history and all those kind of things, but God is personal, not academic. God is living, not an ideal or an idea in a book. We need to come know God to come to know God. Every single person that's ever lived needs a personal transformative experience of the Lord Jesus Christ that means something to them. Oh, maybe some of you, and some of you had, you've had these experiences that just open your life to everything and you knew it. But some of you, it'll be in the quiet nudgings down here at at communion today where you will have the transformative experience in Jesus Christ. Some of you have just had day by day pages turned in the pages of your life where you come to realize that Jesus Christ is transforming your life. But it's got to be personal. It's got to be real. And it's got to be yours because faith is an intimate knowing of God you have to know God not just what somebody else says about God you have to know God like you know your best friends your spouse your closest acquaintances you have to know how they might act next what they might say next and when you get into a personal relationship with God you are so intimate with him that he cannot do anything you don't expect because you're living at his will and disposal secondly Take the basic doctrines of the faith and live by them. Believe that Jesus Christ was an incarnate person on this earth and that the tenet of the faith, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, is true. This is something that we've had in our faith since day one. And once you believe in the risen Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit and allow that spirit to indwell in you, which means pitch a tent in you and and live in you and seek to align your doing whatever you do all day long every day whether paid or unpaid with the scriptures and the affirmed traditions of the church and the affirmed traditions means the proven traditions of a couple thousand years of his human history and christian history third do not deny or distort the faith regardless of the contemporary nar- narrative we own our faith but we do not make faith our own. We don't get to construct our own faith. Faith is something that's granted to us. It's given to us by God. And truth is permanent. It does not blow with the wind of any generational thinking. The the scriptures clearly say, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And last, spend everything of yourself contending for the faith. You really have to ask the question, if it's not us, that contend for the faith, then probably it's nobody. If it's not us, if it's not the church that contends for the faith, who in the world will it possibly be? What are we really saving our energy for? What are we really saving our faithful energy for? What is there something out in the future that we think we need to save ourselves for? I got to tell you, I, I have a calendar. I know I'm playing in the fourth quarter of life, and I know I'm playing the fourth quarter of ministry. And I don't think we need to save ourselves for anything. Jesus, our Lord, saved nothing of himself. His contending for us made him give everything, which is why we have these crosses in the center of our communion as a church. He contends for us. He doesn't stop contending for us because he won't let us go. Holy communion is the opportunity to pledge full commitment to contend for the one who fully contended for us, Jesus Christ.